Most people were tucked up in bed when the quake hit. The ground shook violently as a fault that runs through Turkey and Syria slipped, causing a massive 7.8 magnitude earthquake. Just 11 minutes later, the first of over 200 aftershocks hit. The force of the earthquake in eastern Turkey in the early hours of February 6th caused death and destruction for hundreds of kilometers across Turkey and northern Syria. It was felt in Istanbul and Baghdad, about 800 kilometers away in either direction, and in Cairo, 950 kilometers away. The UN estimated that 23 million people were impacted as the death toll jumped by the hundreds hour to hour. It quickly became the worst earthquake to hit Turkey in generations. But as a number of experts told us in the wake of the tragedy, it's not usually earthquakes that kill, it's collapsing buildings. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes-Young, and this week we're looking at the earthquake in Turkey and why so many buildings collapsed, asking how do you save lives in an earthquake? Before we start, if you want to get all the latest episodes of Beyond the Headlines as soon as they come out, then just hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. We're in the middle of a recovery mission. Uh, here the street has been completely destroyed. There are rubble everywhere. Some family are crying. They just learned that they, they, they lost one of their loved ones. Uh, and chances are really slim to find people still alive. But the recovery team just said that they found someone and they just asked for a bottle of water and they say that they might be alive. So chances are that the person uh, might survive. That's Nada Atala, a reporter for The National who was on the ground in the wake of the Turkey earthquake. She tells us about the scenes of utter destruction on the ground, whole blocks of buildings laid to waste, tented settlements being thrown together to provide some shelter from the snow, the rain and the freezing temperatures. She watched as rescuers pulled out Mehmet from the rubble of his home near the epicentre over 60 hours after the quake hit. But as the time ticked beyond 60 hours, stories of hope like Mehmet's grew less likely as chances of survival diminished. With the quake bringing down at least 6,500 buildings in Turkey and an untold number in Syria, rescuers face an overwhelming task. In Syria's Aleppo on February 9th, three days after the quake and 130 kilometers from the epicenter, rescuers pulled some survivors, but around 45 bodies from just one building in the city center. Turkey's disaster management agency said that it had more than 110,000 rescue personnel taking part after three days, and they had more than 5,500 vehicles including tractors, cranes, bulldozers and excavators, and more were on the way. To get a sense of the scale of the crisis facing rescue teams, we caught up with the International Committee for the Red Cross's Middle East Regional Director, Fabrizio Cabani, who was on the ground trying to coordinate aid and assistance. You have the people in Turkey, you know, very close to the epicentre, who, who obviously I mean, took the full scale of this earthquake. And, and I think we've seen the images. It's just heartbreaking, devastating. And, and on top of this, you have the snow, the cold. It, it's, it's really a lot. 
And then you, you know, the you move towards the northern part of Syria, which includes Idlib and these four million IDPs. You have the area of Alba, Balfrin, and you have Aleppo, who also have been affected, where you also have buildings which collapse. And there, I think for this population, this earthquake is on top of already devastating situation. As Mr. Kabani says, the situation in Turkey is a disaster, but in Syria, in many ways, it's worse. Northern Syria, around Idlib, which is the last rebel-held region, is home to 2.7 million people who are already reliant heavily on aid just to survive. There's no government to coordinate aid deliveries, it's insecure with extremist groups holding some of the territory, and it's been under a years-long regime bombing campaign, as well as years of fighting. I don't want to overplay this resilience of Syrians, because under the word resilience, we put too many things and we excuse too many things. But it's true that when I see, you know, volunteers of the Syrian Arab Crescent, when I see ICIC staff who is victim and at the same time actor, when I see them going out, trying to do their best with the little they have, it's very inspiring and I feel very humbled in front of this. To begin with, though, let's understand exactly what happened. Well, first of all, that means a bit of geography. The Earth isn't solid. It's made up of layers from the crust, the bit that we're stood on, down to a floating liquid outer core and a solid inner core. While about 300 million years ago, the Earth was made up of a one single giant continent called Pangaea. Those continents then drifted to form the outlines of land masses that we recognise today. But those continents are still drifting. Some are being forced under others, some apart, forming gashes like the Great African Rift Valley. While others are being pushed towards the sky, forming mountain ranges like the Himalayas. Right on the border of Turkey and Syria, the Anatolian plate meets the Arabian and the African plates. The African plate is moving north at about 11 millimetres a year, which is forcing the Anatolian plate westwards towards Europe. The result is a long fault line where earthquakes are common. The earthquake on February 6th, though, that wasn't normal. Earthquakes are measured in magnitude, which is a scale from one upwards. The most powerful ever recorded was 9.5 near Chile in 1960. But this scale is logarithmic, meaning that each whole number represents a tenfold increase in power. A magnitude of 7 will be 10 times more powerful than a 6, which is in turn 10 times more powerful than a 5, and so on. To give you an idea of these numbers, A magnitude 1 seismic wave releases about as much energy as blowing up an ounce of TNT. A magnitude 8 earthquake releases as much energy as detonating 6 million tonnes of TNT. While small earthquakes happen regularly, literally millions of times a year around the world, most are small and you don't even really notice them. If you do, they can be scary, but they last for short periods and they don't cause much, if any, damage. Large earthquakes, however, are thankfully quite rare. 
Indeed, the fault line where this happened hasn't had a quake larger than a magnitude 7 since our seismological monitoring networks have been in place in the 1900s, said Stephen Hicks, a seismologist at the University College London. He says that most of Turkey's large earthquakes have happened on the northern edge of the Anatolian plate, effectively along Turkey's northern coast. The quake on February 6th was about the largest ever recorded in Turkey, certainly the largest since December 1939. But why, with all our modern technology, didn't we know this was coming? Couldn't we have warned people? Well, not really, says Ziggy Lipkowski, a seismic expert at the design group Arup and a visiting professor of earthquake engineering at the University College London. There are groups of people who are now coming up with techniques which can give warnings of about half a minute to a minute before an earthquake strikes uh, based on the stresses in the ground. Uh, And that helps uh, high-tech companies uh, shut down processors and machines and such like. So we can do that sort of prediction. But in terms of predictions to help regions uh, like we have here, uh, that's not really feasible. But what we do know is where there are regions of higher hazard. This region has a long written history of major earthquakes. Go back, uh, if we think of uh, Aleppo in Syria, which was the big area in medieval times in 1138, that was leveled by earthquakes, by an earthquake, and led to over 200,000 people dying. And, you know, so there is that history. So we know, and we've got the geology, so we know that this is an area which is at high of seismic hazard. So, you know, there is that knowledge. Earthquake prediction isn't really possible. But we, broadly speaking, know the areas of higher risk. So what do you do? Well, that answer can be complicated. Remember, it's not earthquakes that usually kill, but falling buildings. Now, the Turkish government has said that 6,500 buildings collapsed in the earthquake, and with many of these being multi-storey apartment blocks, that means many could have died in each one. Now, we asked Mr Lebkowski what his advice was if you find yourself in an earthquake. You can help yourself in an earthquake situation. Um, There's a mantra of duck, cover and hold. So you get down under a table below two beds to create yourself an air pocket that you can survive uh, a collapse of a building. You can look at your building before the earthquake. And so that brings us to the question of how to design buildings able to withstand earthquakes. The earthquake provides a large horizontal and vertical force on the building. And we try and make the building flexible, as maybe you would, if you think of your shock absorbers in the car, and we do that by putting, let's say, uh, steel in the uh, reinforced concrete, and we tie that together so it can bend and move uh, adequately. And we have building codes that allow, that we're supposed to follow to ensure that that's done uh, appropriately. To hear from an expert from a country that has adapted very well following major disasters, we spoke with Professor Koji Ichi, 
a professor of seismic engineering at the School of Safety Sciences in Kansai University in Japan. In Japan, the most severe earthquake is in,、uh, happened in 1923 in Kanto earthquake. Almost 100,000 people died, and、uh, mainly it died by fires. We Japanese live in the wooden houses, and when earthquake happens, it collapses, and also we have fires, and so people die. So after that, of course, we start the seismic design, and also, you know, when earthquake happens, we need to shut down the fires, and also use a good material to prevent the fires. That's the first initial step. And after that, we have a long history. <laughs> and in 1995, Kobe earthquake means it's very similar to this, this earthquake and it's very severe. And we learn we cannot stop damage. We need to permit a certain level of damage. Okay. But what is important is we need to survive. We can abandon the building after earthquake. That's okay. But we need to survive. It means Is to survive what is necessary is a space. The, if you have a, you know, if you are sitting, not falling down to your head, you can survive, right? Something like that's the technology developed, I think. That's what I learned. What is important? We mean, we learn priorities, I think. So, as Professor Koji says, designing earthquake proof buildings isn't about designing buildings that aren't damaged, but buildings that don't collapse. What exactly do Japanese engineers do to stop their buildings from falling down? Some of that's simple building in regular patterns, using strong enough concretes interlaced with rebar iron. That can be a start. On the more high tech end, Japan puts rubber blocks in its foundation supports and within building structures to cushion them. They use large, kind of hydraulic type shock absorbers. The result is a skyscraper that can sway but won't fall. In an earthquake. But Professor Koji points out that there's not one thing you can do to make a building earthquake proof. There's a number of measures, from the simple to the high tech, and those are being adapted all of the time as more data is available. Sometimes we, have, we need super high tech, like, okay, for example, earthquake proof building or something earthquake proof technology means even when we have a very big shaking, our room is keep silent. And it is necessary for the hospital, especially when doctors are doing surgery, right? So, super high tech is necessary for special occasions. But for usual houses, we don't need such a super high tech. It depends, it's something like issue of economics of money. That's true. Professor Koji says that even with these interventions, you need to learn from what works and adapt to the next time. He also points out that as you develop new ways of preventing buildings collapse and pass laws to make that the standard, that instantly renders all older buildings now obsolete and potentially dangerous. But every time when we install a new law, an old building is、uh, you know, illegal. And if we destroy or reconstruct those old buildings, it's too much money. So old buildings exist. Okay? Even we have a new rules. We cannot apply this new rule to the old buildings. So, all the new buildings survive and we're still using. In many cases, the people using the old building dies. So, that's a balance. And、uh, how much of enforcement is necessary? It's、uh, something like a political issues. And、uh, yes, political issues depend on country to country. So, some of the response to earthquake risk is technological. Some is financial and some is political. 
How much does the government want to pay or to make private individuals pay? And simply, how much can people pay to make buildings safe? Professor Koje says that there are many ways of doing this, from enforcing building codes that require a minimum level of safety in all new construction, to ways of raising funds to retrofit buildings. He points out that high-use buildings like shops, it's possible for customers, for example, to pay a small levy on each bill to help fund retrofitting so that they wouldn't be trapped if they were shopping when an earthquake hit. But when it comes to private residences or apartment blocks, expensive interventions can be difficult to agree. There's always a question, who pays? Developers? Residents? The government? We cannot stop some kind of level of damage. Maybe cracks, inclination, tilting, or bidding. That's okay, but it can happen. But collapse and killing people is uh, no good, and uh, maybe we can prevent it. Now, it's important to remember with this, a lot of it relies on a functioning government, on a functioning civil service, on local councils. All things that in parts of the worst-hit areas of Syria, they simply don't have after over 12 years of war. And then there's the situation in Turkey. Six and a half thousand buildings at least have collapsed. But Turkey's prone to earthquakes. And yet the US Geological Survey previously warned that the population in this region resides in structures that are extremely vulnerable to earthquake shaking, though some resistant structures exist. They highlighted that many buildings use unreinforced brick masonry and low-rise concrete frames, which are at the greatest risk of collapse. These materials are too stiff to sway with the shaking and are more likely to buckle, leading to catastrophic collapses. But Mr. Lubkowski points out that Turkey has very good buildings codes. Turkey, since the Kocheli earthquake in 1999, which occurred just east of Istanbul, uh, have a very good earthquake code. Uh, it's equivalent to the codes that we use in Europe, America, Japan, or New Zealand. You know, it's it's very good. So, and the Turkish engineers are very competent engineers and they know how to do things that the codes in syria are slightly uh, behind the turkish codes but they're still adequate so the codes are there it's about not just the design but it's also the construction and the supervision of that construction and you've got to get all of those bits right to ensure that we get uh, good performance from buildings Okay, so having building regulations is one thing, but the important next step is enforcing them. You have uh, responsibility put on various individuals and companies to ensure that uh, proper quality assurance processes are followed, Uh, the design calculations are checked sometimes by a third party, uh, that the construction is overseen by the people who've d- done the design to ensure that their uh, concept is actually put into reality and that there are elements that need to be signed off by um, officials in by district surveyors in the UK, for example, but you know people in local governments to ensure that everybody has ticked every box uh, from A to Z in the process of getting to the final constructed uh, building or bridge or hospital or whatever. With Turkey still in a state of emergency and rescue teams pulling people from the buildings, 
it might be too early to really start understanding what caused 6,500 buildings to collapse. If Turkey has good building regulations on paper and departments within many municipalities to oversee earthquake planning, was this a case of the quake being just too strong for the safety regulations? Mr. Lubkowski says that the government has a good understanding and has spent a lot of money on studies and preparedness. He also points out that whilst building codes were redeveloped after the devastating 1999 quake that killed over 17,000 people, buildings older than 20 years wouldn't adhere to those new standards. But on the other hand, we also know the government has run amnesties to register unregulated construction. We know that studies have turned up buildings that on paper say they're earthquake prepared and turn out not to be. There's already been anger from some of the victims of this quake, quick to point the finger at the government for a slow emergency response and those asking why so many buildings collapsed. Now, the scale of the devastation across the border in Syria remains unclear, but we know that parts of the most damaged areas have endured years of fighting and shelling. The buildings there were likely not to have been put up with the latest codes, with any oversight to the construction. Even in the regime areas that have been rebuilt, it's unclear how much government oversight there really is, or the quality of the building materials that have been used. These issues, coupled with a lack of aid and emergency crews getting in, would undoubtedly contribute to a higher death toll. Exactly what that is will only become clear in time. But as Mr. Kodoni from the ICRC said near the beginning, The impact of this quake on northern Syria has been huge. Here he is again. You have on the Turkey side, you know, a state which is prepared for such a situation. And even with all this preparedness, it's challenging. And and we see a movement of international solidarity towards Turkey. and, And we see all those countries sending, you know, first aid teams. But he says... In Syria, things are much more difficult. After political battles at the UN, led by Russia, all aid crossings in northern Syria, other than the one at Bab al-Hawa, were closed. The government in Damascus is demanding that it coordinate all aid deliveries, despite being at war with the armed groups that control parts of northern Syria. Mr. Kadani says that this political aspect is making it harder to get help to those in need. We managed to operate in Syria because we're present there. We have our stocks, we have our people. And so we redirect what we have towards this emergency. Now, I'll be transparent. You know, we have we have no access to northern Syria. We're not present in Idlib uh, and, and other areas. And, and there, this is the call we make, you know. We don't have access for political reasons. It's not that we have, we have no access for, for humanitarian reasons. In the coming days, I'm going with the new president to Syria, and, 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 and we hope that we can make this, this call to all parties, to all stakeholders, to, to, uh, to facilitate a purely humanitarian work. This was Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes-Young. Thanks this week to the ICRC's Fabrizio Cabane, Professor Koji Ichi, and Ziggy Lepkowski. You can follow the latest updates from Nada Atala and the rest of our team covering the Turkey earthquake at thenationalnews.com. And we've also written about how you can get involved if you want to help. We were produced this week by Arthur Edison and Dua Farid. And if you want to get all of the latest episodes of Beyond the Headlines as soon as they come out, then just hit subscribe in your podcast app.